to the book of Daniel chapter 2 as we continue our study through this amazing book. So Daniel chapter 2, I actually had a slide prepared to uh, sort of give you a little bit more history and I forgot to uh, put it up for the guys to present, so we'll pull that up next week. Uh, But in that slide, it was a timeline for Daniel, which I think is important for us to understand. As we were getting into the book last week, we kind of jumped right in with just a short little introduction. But one of the important things about Daniel, and we mentioned this last week, is that Daniel is to the Old Testament what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. So it's important for us to study this book, to understand what it's saying to us. In fact, why don't we do something this morning as you have your Bibles open. Of course, we covered chapter one, but just go to chapter one. Let's just kind of scan this. There's only 12 chapters in this book, but there's a lot here. In chapter 1, we meet Daniel. We understand that he and Israel have been taken captive uh, to Babylon in 605 B.C. In chapter 2 here today, we're going to get into Nebuchadnezzar's dream, who was, of course, the king uh, at that time in Babylon. In chapter 3, we're going to find this uh, image of gold that God, of course, had spoken to Nebuchadnezzar here in chapter 2 and given him some very solemn warnings. But in chapter 3, we see he's sort of disobeying what God had spoken to him, even though he says at the end of the chapter that he worships Daniel's God. And so in chapter 3, this is where we find uh, Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. And then in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a second dream And Daniel is again called upon there to interpret that dream. And then in chapter 5, we have Belshazzar the king, who was uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son, had made a feast, and now he's rebelling against God, and God is speaking to him in a very direct way. And this is where we get the handwriting on the wall. Uh, In chapter 6, we see uh, the plot against Daniel to take him down. And that's where we have this amazing story of Daniel in the lion's den. And then in chapter 7, we begin to get into the prophetic section of the book, the vision of the four beasts and the vision of the ancient of days. You can just kind of let your eyes skim across there. And then chapter 8, a vision of a ram and a goat. And all of these have great spiritual and prophetic significance. The angel Gabriel comes to Daniel to interpret the vision for him. In chapter 9, Daniel begins to pray and really intercede for the people. And in chapter 9, that's where we find that prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And then in chapter 10, we're given more visions and more prophecies from Daniel all the way through chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, we have this prophecy of the end time. And really, chapters 7 through 12 are quoted And they're very key to understanding the book of Revelation. They're quoted in the book of Revelation. So that's sort of just a quick little overview to prepare your hearts. And I hope and pray that you will read ahead. It's not a long book, but it does have some challenging sections. And so this morning, as we continue to build on that, we are in chapter 2 of uh, Daniel. And so we are going to read the first 23 verses this morning and just see what the Lord has for us as we 
jump into this chapter together. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, excuse me. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I've had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then, with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, "'Blessed be the name of God forever and ever.'" For wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of your word. And we trust that, as always, you will be our teacher and our guide to lead us through these things. 
Meet us, Lord, in this time and in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So it says here in verse 1, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, going back to chapter 1 and looking at the timelines, uh, we believe this is now roughly three years after what we encountered in chapter 1, which would mean that Daniel and his uh, companions had now completed their three years of training, that they are now in the king's court, in the king's service. They have graduated from the University of Babylon. They are now there at the king's right hand. And they are, uh, we are hearing now that in the second year, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. We're told here in this chapter of two things. We're told of a dream and we're told of a vision. And those two things are distinct. Dreams, just by definition of the word, often comes during sleep. So when we are at rest and our eyes are closed and, you know, we know today we've gone into REM sleep, you know, that most restful time, that's when the dreams occur. And these dreams, <clears throat> whatever they were, and of course they're going to be revealed in this, this passage, these dreams troubled the king. So much so as it said that his sleep left him, that he was having trouble going to sleep. He was having trouble resting because of the troubling nature of these dreams, and he didn't know what they meant. And the king gave the command, verse 2, to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, who uh, the word Chaldean here means a people group called the Chaldeans, but it also was a term that was used to refer to a group of people within the Chaldeans who, like this list suggests, were magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, soothsayers, And so it's interesting that the king and most kings in that day had a court of those kinds of people. So if you wanted to put it in our modern context, you know, having someone who reads tarot cards, someone who reads a crystal ball, someone who will interpret your horoscope for you. And all of these things are, of course, of the supernatural. They are, of course, things that are not sanctioned by the scriptures. But the king called his court of people that he kept on payroll to come and tell him what these things meant. And of course, kings would often consult these people before they made major decisions. So they came and they stood before the king. And in verse 3, the king said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Now, by what he is saying here, it would seem that the king has either forgotten the dream or he has troubled, just been so troubled by it, and he can only understand bits or pieces. There are those who would like to debate uh, one way or the other that maybe the king knows the dream, but he's withholding the dream from those that he's calling to his court, which is certainly a possibility. But the general consensus is that the king either has a fuzzy memory with respect to his dream or he's forgotten it altogether. Either way, he says, my spirit is anxious to know the dream. That could also mean to understand the dream. Verse 4, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. One point of note for us here is that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. But there are certain 
places where for a period of time a different language is written in the Bible. And from right here, from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 7, verse 28, this text in the original language is written in the Aramaic. People wonder, well, why is that? Well, Aramaic was the common language of Babylon. And notice it says here that the Chaldeans in verse 4 spoke to the king in Aramaic. So it would seem that Daniel, for this period of time here, wrote it in a different language. It's no problem. We can translate it, and of course we have. But it's interesting to note, nonetheless, that this section of Scripture is the only section of the Bible written in a different language, other than Hebrew and Greek, the two languages that the Bible is primarily written in. There's a couple of other places, if you're interested, where a verse here or there might be quoted in Aramaic, but the only section like this from chapter 2 to chapter 7, that's a large section, uh, this is the only place written in that language. So the Chaldeans spoke to the king, and they said, tell your servants the dream, and we'll give the interpretation. But in verse 5, the king answered and said, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. You might say, king, you're a little severe in doing this. But the king, it would appear as desperate to know what this dream was and what it meant. And at the same time, he is testing those he has on his payroll to find out if they can earn their keep. You know, do you really know? Do you really understand? Are you really who you say you are? Are you really providing a value to the royal court? And so he's challenging them, not only with the dream itself, with, but with their craft, their art, their expertise. And he says, however, if you tell the dream, verse 6, and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now, if we could put ourselves for the moment in the shoes of the king, and we had this troubling dream over and over, and we wanted to know what it was and what it meant, and, you know, why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't you say, hey, this is what I'm paying you for. This is your job. Provide to me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered again and said in verse 7, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. And the king answered, verse 8, and said, I know for certain that you would gain time. You're, in other words, you're just stalling. You don't really know, do you? And so he's just putting them uh, to the fire there, their feet to the fire. And he says, I know that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. In other words, you're going to be chopped up. You're going to be executed. You're going to be cut in pieces. If you do not make known to me this, there's only one decree for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words. And that's pretty bad. That's a punishable offense to lie to the king. Uh, Till the time has changed. You're just stalling to buy time. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It's a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh or not with men. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious. 
and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Pretty rough to talk about a bad day at the office, huh? Your whole department is murdered. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions. Why? Because they were a part of that court. That's what they had been prepared for, to be wise men in service to the king. Then the counsel and wisdom, uh, then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? What's he so fired up about? Then Arioch informed him. He told him what happened because apparently Daniel and his friends were not in the court at the time that this whole thing happened. And for whatever reason, when the king had summoned all of those people to come to his court, you know, perhaps they were away on assignment, but they were not there. They didn't hear it. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now, you got to love Daniel because we know what just happened earlier uh, with the men as they were stalling, so to speak, and saying, you know, whatever they could to buy time from the king. But Daniel didn't know those things either. And so Daniel went in and asked the king, would you give me time that we might have time to learn the interpretation? And this reminds me of the beautiful verses found in the book of James. And let me direct your attention there. James chapter one. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And later in James 4, uh, you do not have because you do not ask. So Daniel had the bravery, the courage, perhaps the the childlike ignorance. Remember at this point, last week as we came into the story, we said Daniel and his friends when they were taken captive were somewhere between 13 and 17. So we pick the random number of 15 kind of right in the middle. So if you add the three years of training, he's probably, you know, 18 or so at this point. And he's going before the king as a teenager to ask the king to give him time to learn the dream and to learn the interpretation. Apparently the king granted it because in verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And look at verse 18. Here's the purpose, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So while they are in their room, praying, asking the Lord, waiting on the Lord, their companions, the, the other wise men and those who were the soothsayers and all of those, they are out being killed. So once again, we see God and his divine sovereignty intervening and sparing the lives of his, his people. And here we find, as it says, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven. Notice their response and again, we have to remind ourselves of the desperation of the situation. The king had issued a kill order. 
on everyone who was in this department in his kingdom. And now that Daniel and his friends understand that, what is their first response? It's to pray. It's to get on their knees before God. And then it has been said that desperation and urgency drive us to prayer. And that is true. I can validate that in my own life. You probably can in your life as well. Desperation and urgency drive us to prayer. You know, sometimes we can go along weeks at a time. Things are going fine. Sun rises, the sun sets. Our schedule works the way it's supposed to. Everything's fine. No flat tires, no car issues, no issues with the house, no relational issues. Then one day something happens. And you know how it is. One thing happens and then another and then another. Sometimes it seems they come in threes. And all of a sudden our peace is now chaos. Things have happened. Now all of a sudden our car is broken. We need a new car. Or this relationship over here is in turmoil. And we don't know what we said or what happened. Or things are happening in the world. And uh, the world is changing. Laws are being made. And we find ourselves in a place of desperation and urgency. And now all of a sudden, now we finally say, God. And I think so often the Lord says to us in those moments, I'm so glad you came. I've been waiting for you. And I've allowed these things to cause you to come and have fellowship with me in these moments. You see, the battle is always won on our knees in the prayer closet. It's not, not won, as the Bible says, not by might nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. One commentator says, I think the reason we do not pray more faithfully and fervently is because we don't feel the urgency. We tend to be self-sufficient and we do not see our God as big enough. So there are times when God brings things like this into our lives and into the lives of our friends to bring us to our knees. Four years ago, some of you will remember this if you were here, I all of a sudden found out I needed open heart surgery. And I had six blockages. And uh, I remember getting desperate before God in that moment. But I remember something very special. As we went through that situation, through that event, so many of you and those who were here at the time had set up uh, sort of prayer chains and were praying for us. And I remember on the day of my surgery, I had to be at the hospital at 5 a.m. If you've ever been through something like that. And when I arrived at the hospital, there was a, a five or six people who had made it the point to get up at 4 a.m. and come to the hospital and to meet us. And we sat in the waiting room and we prayed together. And I'll never forget that, and I'll never forget those faces. Because it's in the, that, those moments when we get desperate before God, you see, that's when God meets us. That's where he meets us. And it happens because finally, we're desperate enough for him. Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, 
and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Paul calling to mind there a time when he was, as he described it, despairing of life. They were in such a desperate time and a desperate situation, yet the Corinthian church drew alongside. And what did they do? They prayed for him and with him. So I think this is a good time this morning as we encounter this moment where Daniel tells his friends of the urgency of the situation and they get in a room and pray that this is what we should be doing. And while we provide a time on Wednesday nights for that, that's a wonderful thing and I hope that you will take advantage of that. But when these things happen, you know, you don't have to call the pastor. You can call your friends and your family around you and you could sit down and pray together when the time's get difficult. So we're told that Daniel and his friends got together and prayed. And look at verse 19. It says, then, and the then comes after they got together to pray. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So in visions... Uh, it's believed when you look at these words and study them that the vision means the person was awake and that God gave them a revelation. He revealed something to them. You may remember we studied this in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 10 as Peter was up on the roof of Cornelius' house it says that God gave him a vision. And that was the vision of the sheet coming down with all of the unclean animals in it. So then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So God revealed this to Daniel. God spoke to Daniel. God showed him what was happening. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And as we look through this, just to read through these few verses together, then Daniel answered and said, blessed is the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness. And light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Have you ever had an answer to prayer like this? Where you prayed and, and, and God just spoke to you. And he told you what the answer was. He provided the answer. I have, and I wish it happened more frequently, but it happened. And the Lord spoke directly to Daniel and he gave him the secret. And that's why I come back to Psalm 25. And again, I would sort of commend that psalm to you. It's not a very long psalm, but in it, the, uh, the, the part that I read this morning, verse 12 of Psalm 25, who is the man who, that fears the Lord? Him shall he, that is God, teach in the way that he, that is God, chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. That's what happened here with Daniel, where the Lord revealed to him specifically what was happening. Now keep in mind, 
the king has not revealed this dream to anyone, not a single person. And the Lord spoke this dream to Daniel and you, you look at it and you say the king set up an impossible situation because it seems like perhaps he wanted to clean house anyway. But certainly God was in charge, was he not? That this seemingly unreasonable request, this order that couldn't be met and it was indeed impossible, they, they called it correctly when they said uh, this is not with men. Men can't do this kind of thing. And they said, oh, the gods, only the gods can do this. So even in their sort of sarcasm and ignorance, God was setting it up because God was the only one who could bring the answer. The secret was revealed to Daniel so that Daniel could reveal the secret to them. This brings up an interesting point one commentator said, and I thought it was interesting and worth repeating. Christianity begins with the principle of revelation. What we know about God is what he has revealed to us. We actively seek him, but we seek what he has revealed. And this is what I thought was so interesting. Our job isn't to figure things out about God, but to understand what he has already revealed to us. You see, sometimes I think we are looking for some answer that's outside of the Bible, that's outside of the working of the Spirit of God in our lives, but it's here. Uh, all the words of wisdom and knowledge are here for us, and God uses this book to speak to us and to communicate with us. So in Daniel, in this prayer of response, these four verses, uh, this is another time I encourage you to highlight or underline or write in your Bible, beginning in verse 20 all the way down to verse 23, 14 times. Daniel calls out or mentions the name of God. Verse 20, blessed be the name of God, there's one. For wisdom and might are his, there's another one. Verse 21, and he changes the times and the seasons and he removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom. Verse 22, he reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. I love how Daniel looks at it and he says, God, you were the answer. God gave him the answer, but God himself, you see, I think Daniel learns something in this experience and in, in desperation that when we come to God, when we pray, when we seek his face, God doesn't just give us an answer and he doesn't just give us a solution because isn't that the way we're sort of wired? God, can you just give me the question, the answer to the question and sign this check and I'll be on my way. That's the way we think. But God wants us to learn to depend upon him. You see, the solution is not just the answer. The solution is him. He is the answer. And he wants us to learn to dwell in his presence. He wants us to learn to abide with him. We find an interesting, to me, corollary to this, to what the answer that God gave Daniel in Isaiah chapter 40, and I'll read it to you. It's Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 22. Listen to this. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. 
And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then... Will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Isaiah forty twenty two to 26. And that's in response to what verse 21 says where it says he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. You see, where it says there that he changes the times and the seasons, certainly God changes the times and the seasons on the calendar. God has set time in motion. No one can stop it. God changes the seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall throughout the year. But certainly in our lives, there are times and seasons, are there not, where we go through things, a time of, of, of love and getting married and then having children and raising those children. And that all takes place over years. And those are times and seasons. And then a different time and season comes upon us. And in those times and seasons, God is there. He is over those things. He controls them. He changes them. And when it says he removes kings and raises up kings, that passage we just read in Isaiah chapter 40 shows us as it says that God sits above the circle of the earth. See, God is in control and we forget it. God is in charge. So why else would we go somewhere else to seek answers, to find wisdom? We're reminded in Proverbs 21 verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. We need to remind ourselves of these things. I've, I've said oftentimes when we find a prayer in the Bible or, or we find a response to prayer, or we find a response to, to God working in a huge and a mighty way that we should underline it and highlight it. And I think this passage in Daniel qualifies that you should underline and highlight and circle and make this a place that you go to when you're desperate, like the prayers in Ephesians where Paul and Colossians where Paul prays and he writes that prayer down right there for us to see. When we come to those dry places in our lives where you say, God, I don't even know what to pray. Pray those prayers. Read those prayers. Make those prayers your own. And in the closing of his prayer and his response here in verse 23, he talked about how God had made known these things, how God had revealed these things. Daniel had the certainty of faith to believe that God had given him the answer because what's going to happen next, think about this, this 18-year-old boy who says, I just got a revelation from God, is going to walk into the presence of the king and say, here's what God told me. And we're going to find out that every single letter is true. 
You see, God gave him the answer even before uh, confirming it before Nebuchadnezzar. Because on his knees in the quiet place in the prayer room with his other friends as they prayed, God revealed it to them. This makes me remember those times like in Acts 13. Of course, we had just finished the book of Acts. That those five men were in the upper room and they were praying and ministering to the Lord and waiting on the Lord. And it says, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, set apart from me Saul and Barnabas to the work unto which I have prepared them and that I've called them. And in that moment they acted because God had spoken and in like manner here, God has spoken to Daniel. He's revealed it to him. Daniel knows, I heard from God these words. And he began to act on them. Coming back to what this commentator said, Daniel had the certainty of faith to believe that God gave him the answer, even before confirming it before Nebuchadnezzar. Our level of faith is often indicated by how long it takes us to start praising God when God gives us the answer. If we won't praise him until the answer is in hand, then we don't have much faith. Greater faith is able to praise God when the promise is given and received. Meaning he's given us the answer, he's given us the promise, but it hasn't happened yet. That's where faith happens, not just after we see it come to pass. So in verse 24, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said to him, thus, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king. And notice what he says as he goes in before the king. Oh, king, I found somebody. Me, I got it. I found this dude here. He's going to tell you everything you need to know. Now think about the arrogance of that. He hasn't even heard it. And he's going in before the king. He's like, I found the dude who's going to solve this problem for you, king. So Ariok quickly brought Daniel in. He said, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven. You see, not, not even Daniel, not in that moment. Not, Daniel did not take credit. Did you catch that? He gave glory to God. He didn't want the king depending upon him. You see, we as men and women, we as flesh, we will fail. But he's pointing him to God, and that's what we need to learn to do in verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. This reminds me of that time. Don't you remember reading this? And I think it's in the Kings and Chronicles where uh, Elijah, right? Uh, the, the, the king at that time, he's all upset because you know, there's got to be a spy in the court. There's got to be a mole. And then somebody comes and says, no, no, no. His God keeps telling him what the king whispers in his bedroom. And that's the same thing that's happening here. The secret which the king has demanded, they can't say it, but there's a God in heaven who does this. He reveals secrets and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. Now, before we get into this, I want to remind you of something that Daniel at 18 years old 
taking a step of faith, trusting God. This is the first time he's ever done anything like this. Why do I say that? Because so often the first time we encounter something, don't we often kind of hit that wall of fear? We're like, well, you know, I've never done anything like this before, so I'm not going to do it. But what if God wants you to do it? What if God is pushing you in that direction? What if he's told you? What if he's given you everything you need and all you need to do is to take that step and begin to obey him? You see, fear and faith cannot peacefully coexist. Fear is the opposite of faith. Faith takes steps. Faith trusts God. And so Daniel, for the very first time in his young life, is taking a step into the unknown. Remember that oath he took all the way back in chapter 1? Hey, we're not going to defile ourselves. We're going to stay true to the Lord. We're going to read his word. We're going to pray. We don't want to be defiled with the king's court. And remember, they granted the request. And now we're beginning to see some of that pay off as Daniel takes this step of faith. And so in verse 29, he begins to speak. And notice what Daniel does here. First, he tells the king what was in his heart, what was troubling him before he tells him the dream. So he goes way above and beyond. That reminds me of that beautiful verse in Ephesians 3.20 that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. The king said, tell me the dream, tell me the interpretation. But he also said that he was troubled in his heart. And so Daniel reveals to him the troubles in his heart. Verse 29, as for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed. I'm telling you what you were thinking about what would come to pass after this. You were thinking about the future. You were worried about the future. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone else, than anyone else living. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king that you may know the thoughts of your heart. In other words, that you wouldn't kill everybody just because you're upset. And he says, you, O king, verse 31, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And so now the king is having this vision of this kind of very strange statue, and it's being described here uh, in this way of these different uh, metals, fine gold of the head, the chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So a very strange situation where the feet are a mixture of iron and clay, and obviously those things do not mix. But it's interesting as we look at this, the materials described in value go from top to bottom, from gold to silver, uh, to bronze, to iron, and clay. And he says, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
And he says, now this is the dream. So here's the interpretation of the dream. You, O king, are a king of kings. And notice what he says here. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. He's letting the king know that his great might and his great power was ordained by God. That he didn't get there because of you know, his own prowess, his own intellect, because he was you know, the greatest person who's ever lived. He's saying, no, no, you're in that position and you have this kingdom because God has given it to you. God has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And whenever the children, uh, wherever, excuse me, the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand. And he has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So he's helping the king understand in this vision that he's had of this great statue that the king is the head of gold. And so he's beginning to lay it out and interpret it for me, saying this has significance. It has physical significance, but it also has spiritual significance. But after you arise... Another kingdom, excuse me, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So he's helping him understand that this, this statue is a vision of what's coming. At the top is the head of gold. He says, that's you, O king. But he says, the next thing, the silver and the bronze and the feet, <clears throat> those are other kingdoms, <clears throat> excuse me, that are coming after you. I'm prepared this time. I have water. So he's letting the king know that there are other kingdoms that will come up and rise after him. And he says, whereas you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another just as the iron does not mix with clay. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands... And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So as Daniel is speaking the interpretation of the dream, he's painting this picture. That there will be other kingdoms that will come after you. And we'll we'll talk about this in just a moment, what those kingdoms were. And how long they reigned. 
But he's letting the king know because the king, remember, he was troubled. He was laying in his bed thinking in his heart, and Daniel's now revealed it, that you were thinking about the future, not just that sort of general, you know, I wonder what's going to happen someday in the future, you know, when I'm 20 years older than I am now and that kind of a thing. No, he, he's telling him the long view. This, this is not just like 30, 40 years. He's giving him <clears throat> hundreds of years of vision for what's happening And so he's letting the king know that this dream you've had, God is revealing something to you in this dream. He's revealing something to all of us as we listen to its interpretation. And it's interesting here, this part where it says in verse 43, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. The commentators are mixed on what that could be referring to, but the only time I'm aware of in the Bible where that's spoken of, something like that is spoken of, is all the way back in Genesis chapter 6. And that's the Nephilim, and that's where you may recall, if you were here when we went through the book of Genesis, that there's a few views on that. But one of those views is that the fallen angels of heaven had tried to intermarry with human beings and create this crazy kind of a generation. And God, through the flood, of course, dealt with that. But it does make us wonder if, you know, given that Satan and his emissaries are always trying to assert themselves and prove themselves uh, to make us as human beings believe that they are just as powerful as God that perhaps they were again sort of trying to break into human history and to do something. Uh, Whether that's true or not, I'll leave that up to you to search out. But I find it interesting just to consider the possibilities as it says they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. Just as iron does not mix with clay, this is not something that God would allow to happen. So at the time, as Babylon was reigning, and that was the head of gold through King Nebuchadnezzar, he's saying that there will be other kingdoms that will come up. The Medo-Persian Empire would come after the Babylonian Empire, then Greece, then Rome. And the nature of these things was exactly as it was reflected in this vision. Babylon, the head of gold, was an absolute autocracy, Persia, a monarchical oligarchy with the nobles uh, equal to the king in all but offices represented by silver. Greece was set forth by brass and indicated the still lower value of its aristocracy of mind and influence. Rome, a democratic imperialism with military dominion, depended upon the choice of army and citizenry and administered in the spirit of martial law is set forth by iron. The Babylonian Empire stood for 66 years. After that, the Medo-Persian Empire for 208 years. The Greco-Roman Empire for 185 years. And the Roman Empire stood for more than 500 years. So you see that history from 605 BC, at least, counting from then when uh, Babylon uh, took over Jerusalem and, and took the southern kingdom captive, Think about that 66 years, then 208, then 185, and then 500. You're now into the first century. You're, of course, into the time of Jesus. 
And it's interesting as it says here, uh, speaking of the stone in verse 45, inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Notice what he says, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass. So the question is, what is the stone? What is that referring to? And most everyone believes that that stone was referring to the Messiah, referring to Jesus himself. And why is that? Well, there's a number of places, I'll give you four, that speak to Jesus as the stone. We read it this morning in Psalm 118. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Isaiah 8, 14, uh, he will be as a sanctuary, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the, both the houses of Israel and as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Isaiah 28, uh, verse 16, behold, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not act hastily. And then in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 9, for behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. All of those are referring to the Messiah, Jesus. So that Jesus was spoken of as a stone. There's no surprise with that. And so that stone was carved out of the mountain and it moved freely and it went and it crushed those kingdoms. God himself rules and reigns over kingdoms. God rules and reigns over the affairs of men. And in verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Isn't it interesting? So often when God speaks and moves powerfully through a person, through the agency of a human being, so often people fall and worship that human being. And the king answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. So Daniel, I'm sure, didn't want to receive that praise because he wanted God himself to receive the glory and the honor and the praise. We're told there in verse 48, then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. 18 years old, made CEO of that department. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. An amazing chapter, an amazing prophecy. And there's so many things on so many levels that we could learn here. We've, we've stated a lot of them as, as we've gone through, but You know, too often we look at ourselves when these things happen and we find ourselves in these situations and we think things like, because I know I've thought these things, and perhaps you never have, you know, God, you couldn't use me. This is too great for me. Lord, this is, surely you've got someone else that you want to raise up. I mean, Moses did that, right? He said, I don't know how to speak. God, you're calling me to speak. And God says, I am calling you to speak. And God worked with his weakness. Remember, he gave him a mouthpiece to speak for him. 
Remember in the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, I'm, I'm just a youth, God. You can't, you can't use a youth. I'm just a young man. God said, don't, don't say don't. I can. And so Daniel, 18 years old, filled with the Spirit, consecrated to the Lord. God ushers him into this realm where now he's interpreting dreams to the king. What an amazing thing. The king had a dream and God revealed it to Daniel. And at some level, you have to say that while God had a greater purpose in giving this dream and revealing it to King Nebuchadnezzar, he also had a purpose in having Daniel and his friends in place at that moment in that time to be the people who came together and they prayed and they sought the Lord and the Lord revealed it to them, those four men in prayer. And Daniel was appointed to be the mouthpiece and he goes into the court of the king and he delivers the thoughts of his heart and he tells him right down to the gnat's eyelash what you were thinking before you went to sleep. What an amazing thing. And God wants to do these kinds of things with you and me. Oh, it may not be interpreting a dream before a king, but it might be. It might be something much simpler. It might be in a moment that God has put you in a place for a certain time to speak up on his behalf, to speak for his name, to give a word of encouragement, maybe even to share the gospel. I think it's a good idea just to keep some tracks laying around. You can just hand to people, hey, I got to run, but maybe you could read this later here and write your phone number on the back. Call me. Well, let's talk about this. God can and will use anyone who is available to him. Just as he used Daniel, he will use us. If we are willing, lay aside your ideas and your constructs about age and education and giftedness and personality, type A, type B, type C. Lay all that stuff aside. Because in God's hand, he can use anything. Remember, David, before he became king, remember when he went out to the camp of the Philistines and they were mocking the God of heaven? Daniel ran down uh, to the stream. He got five smooth stones, but he only needed one. And with his sling, he used that and he hit uh, the giant Goliath in the one spot where he was vulnerable, which was one little hole in the helmet on his head. God can do things like that. If we are willing, these stories are not just here to be great stories to teach our kids in Sunday school or to read in bedtime stories. These are real things that happen and all of these things are here for our learning. So just as God spoke to Daniel and used Daniel, God can and will do the same for every one of us if we are willing to let him. And I trust that you're willing and I hope that you are willing that you will put yourself in a position as Daniel did with his friends to get on your knees before God and pray and say, God, unless you speak, unless you provide, unless you guide, unless you deliver, it ain't gonna happen. And let God work. So Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for speaking to, to us. We thank you for ministering. And God, we admit we want faith like this. We want you to move like this in our lives. Not that we want to be carried away captivity to a strange land, 
and put in prison, essentially, and be brainwashed, but that we would be faithful to you here now where we are. Let you use us. God, we say to you right now, and I, I pray that everyone would be able to say this in their heart honestly before you. God, use me. Here I am. I'm your servant. Use me. Lord, for those this morning who are sitting here listening, who have never given their hearts to Jesus, I pray that right now that they would simply say, Lord, I come to you. I want to respond to the gospel. I want to be forgiven. I want to be clean. And I want to live this kind of life, a life of faith that trusts you and depends upon you. Lord, would you do that for me, for us, for this church, for all who are listening? God, pour out your spirit upon us, your servants. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.